Hello and welcome to the Weekend Wrap for the week on Wednesday. I am your host, Ben Davison, and it is Sunday, the 27th of August in the year 2023. Hope wherever you are around Australia and indeed around the world, you're having a wonderful day, a wonderful week, and that the year 2023 is a good one for you. Of course, Van is not joining me today because she is in Sydney for the Sydney Playwrights Festival. And if you're listening to this before three o'clock on Sunday, you can get along and see her. Tickets are available via the links on her Facebook page and I think on Twitter as well. Check it out. It's going to be an interesting panel discussing some very interesting topics indeed. Of course, speaking of interesting topics, what would the weekend wrap be without some analysis of insiders? So let's get stuck into it. First of all, I want to call out the discussion about public education. David Spears brought this up towards the end of the show and a discussion about NAPLAN results. Two thirds of Australian students are at or above uh, the standard required, and there is a third dropping below. David Spears seemed to say that this was in spite of record amounts of funding going to education. Now, I want to call this out because the reality is, Mr. Spears, uh, that while quote-unquote record amounts of funding are going into education, they are skewed disproportionately towards private school education. And in fact, public education per capita is being significantly underfunded. And in fact, in some cases, funding has been cut. Only 1.3% of public schools get the minimum required funding, leaving well over, well over 98% of Australian public schools in the underfunded basket. So when only 1.3% of schools have the funding they need for every child, it's a miracle that two-thirds of children are at or above the standard for reading and literacy, literacy and numeracy. So it just boggles the mind that David Spears would make this sort of uneducated comment. I was also surprised that Laura Tingle basically tried to dismiss the whole thing as a state problem when the, and that they the Commonwealth only funds private schools. Quite a remarkable uh, and surprising uh position from Laura Tingle. Sean Kelly uh, made the point very, very clearly that private schools in this country are overfunded when it comes to the minimum requirement and that public schools are underfunded. We've been talking about this for some time on the week on Wednesday. It's good to see somebody on Insiders taking a proper interest in this. Uh, There is a campaign being run by the teachers union, the Australian Education Union. It's called For Every Child. You can check it out at, check it out at foreverychild.au. Fundamentally, 1.3% of schools get the funding they need. Two-thirds of our students are at or above the minimum standard for literacy and numeracy. Those are miraculous numbers. If I was sitting here talking to you saying that only 1.3 of our hospitals were properly funded, you would be enraged. We cannot have a conversation in this country without about productivity and about the future of this country without taking into account how we educate our children, which is ironic because, of course, the most of Insiders was dedicated to the concept of a discussion about productivity, uh, particularly around tax reform. Now, look, 
the idea that there are foreign nationals shopping for the best tax deal and making that the primary criteria for where they will move to may well be true. It could be it could be true. And that's certainly what the gentleman from uh, the boss's pamphlet was suggesting on Insiders Today. However, I would put this counterpoint. If low taxation was the only factor or even the deciding factor, then there would be a rush of people to go and live in Belize or Somalia, countries where taxes are incredibly low. But we know that Melbourne and Sydney are both regularly listed as being at the very top of the world's most livable cities, a ranking system which is designed entirely to provide multinational corporations and their staff with a ranking system for where they might want to live. That is for foreign nationals to have a guide to the best places for them to move to. And it includes taxation, but it also includes things like transportation, public transport, healthcare systems, the rule of law, the education system. So many other factors come into this, which is why I find the discussion around productivity very, very shallow. And I find the discussion around taxation very, very shallow. The greatest period of prosperity in this country at least coincided with, if not was caused by, a period of some of the highest taxes on the wealthiest people and corporations in our nation's history. And yet the BCA, the Business Council of Australia, this week tried to make the argument for lower corporate taxes. Of course, that great period of prosperity also was when we had the highest levels of union membership in this country. Business Council of Australia has also argued that we should deregulate, that is, strip rights from workers, and that unions have too much power. Peter Dutton has had this refrain for some time. In fact, uh, there was an old quote from 2018 where Peter Dutton says that the Australian people are tired of, quote, the dictatorship of unions. These are bizarre ideas. These are old-fashioned ideas. These are ideas that come from a time and place where John Howard was Prime Minister, where you could buy a house for $100,000 rather than starting at a million. The fundamental failures of the BCA and Peter Dutton to recognise that the problems around productivity and taxation in this country are not caused by or should be borne by working people. They are caused by big business. And there are some classic examples. Qantas this week announced a $2.5 billion profit. $2.5 billion profit. At the same time, Qantas has not directly employed a new uh, air steward or stewardess, uh, a new flight attendant of any kind, since 2008. Instead, they have used labour hire and outsourced providers. Some of these labour hire companies that they've used 
are actually fully owned by Qantas. They've literally just set up companies to outsource their own staff. These loopholes have to be closed. If we want productivity in this country, we need to properly educate people. That means fully funding public education. We need to ensure that workers have the rights that they require to be productive in the workplace and productive outside the workplace. That means having reasonable rosters. That means having proper remuneration. That means having healthy and safe workplaces. These are all things that the union movement campaigns for and ensures when they have members on site. It's another reason to join your union. You should go to australianunions.org.au slash wow. You can join online as you listen to this podcast or on your way to work tomorrow or whenever you might go. Of course, penalty rates is something else unions fight for. The BCA's view is that reforms to taxation should include increasing the GST while reducing income taxes. This obsession with random arbitrary thresholds is so destructive and counterproductive and throughout the course of history is proven to be nonsensical. It does not matter that half of the revenue of the government comes from income tax. But somehow or another, this is being used, and it was mentioned on Insiders, as some kind of magical threshold. People might not remember, but I certainly do, that there was a time when the idea that government debt going above 100% of GDP was the threshold at which the government would start to collapse. And in fact, was used uh, by the IMF as a trigger during the GFC to force changes in Greece. Well, the US national debt is well above 200%. The UK national debt is well above 100% of GDP. These are arbitrary lines drawn by people who have a particular interest or a particular set of beliefs. The idea that we would reduce income taxes on the wealthiest people while increasing the GST, which is the BCA's idea, is abhorrent. It's absolutely abhorrent. We've just had a year discussing inflation and how terrible that is. If you raise the GST, you instantly increase prices by whatever you raise the GST by. When was what when was the biggest spike in inflation prior to the post-COVID supply chain problems? The, incre- the introduction of the GST. That was the last big spike. So the idea that we would suddenly jack up prices for everybody on everything by 5% or 10% is so outlandish that it could only have come from the BCA. And credit to Jim Chalmers for dismissing that idea. One of the many, many issues that needs to be discussed when we talk about productivity is the fact that capital productivity in this country remains abhorrently poor. And yet, insiders didn't discuss it really at all. It's almost as if they have been indoctrinated over a long period of time to believe that productivity is really just a function of how much you can squeeze workers and how much you can lower taxes. So in some ways, credit to the BCA and AIG and the Productivity Commission in its various guises and forms for successfully convincing people in the media 
that the neoliberal models of productivity are the only ones that really exist. Sadly, for the rest of us, we have to break through that narrative because it's not real. It's not true, and there are many other ways for us to extract more productivity from our economy than simply cutting taxes for the wealthy and increasing workloads on workers. In fact, capital productivity is a fundamental driver. Now, what is capital productivity? It's what you invest in. For example, let's use Qantas once again. Alan Joyce sweated the assets of Qantas. What does that mean? If you've been on a Qantas plane in the last six to 12 months, you'll have noticed something that I certainly have. That is that the planes are garbage. The internals are dirty and scruffy. Things are broken. Things don't work properly. Flights are more often delayed than not. This is called sweating the assets, getting extra life out of the assets of the company. Planes cost a lot of money. There's no question about that. Replacing planes requires a capital investment. But newer planes are more fuel efficient. Newer planes will get you there faster. Newer planes offer additional comforts, additional services, which people would be willing to pay for. In effect, newer planes are more productive. But... The capital outlay is something that Qantas doesn't want to do. In fact, it wants to sweat the assets it's got to extract more money from them. And in an environment where Qantas effectively dominates the market, it's able to do that. Competition, in this case, is something that is required. Competition and perhaps even regulations about how long these things can stay in the air. Is it really that safe to have a 45-year-old plane flying around? I don't know. I haven't looked into that as much. But I will say this. Australian companies fundamentally are lazy when it comes to capital allocation. They are profit-focused. They are bonus-focused. They are not productivity-focused. Qantas is just one of many, many examples. There's a reason why you don't see very many Australian CEOs overseas. It's because fundamentally they can't hack it. Australian companies are lazy with capital. They don't invest it properly. They don't invest in the training of their workforce. They're not maximizing productivity and efficiency of capital. They let the capital sit on their balance sheet. They let their assets sweat until they collapse and fall apart, hoping that by the time it does, they won't be there anymore. Of course, we all know Alan Joyce is out the door at Qantas. This is a fundamental problem. Until this is addressed, until capital productivity is actually brought into the sites of public discourse, the productivity problems of this country won't be fixed. And interestingly, Alan Kohler has been talking about this as well, that while profits have been increasing, capital efficiency has been decreasing. So where does that money come from? Well, friends, it comes from the pockets of working people. Yet another reason to join your union. Because Allegra Spender 
who represents one of the wealthiest electorates in the country, when asked on Insiders Today, said that she's concerned about some of the potential IR reforms, which are going to be introduced to Parliament this week. IR reforms designed to crack down on sham contracting. And as Laura Tingle rightfully did point out, crack down on the sham contracting in the so-called gig economy that is swamping the NDIS so that workers have proper job security, proper wages, and proper minimum standards. That Allegra Spender has some concerns about some aspects of this and the complexity, quote unquote, of the system. I find it a miracle. I find it amazing. It's, it's, it's almost as if the complexity of an IR system is only relevant when it's tipping the balance back towards working people. A system where companies can set up multiple outsourced sham contracting providers. It can own its own. It can have them based offshore. It can have different directors. You can run different tax arrangements. Somehow or another, that's not complex. But reading an award is. I find that just ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. Are awards complex? Well, are they more complex than renewing your license? Yes. Are they more complex than a range, setting up a range of shelf companies to minimize tax and minimize workers' wages? No, they're not, actually. And if they were, if they were, then nobody would be paid the award. The reason why I know they're not is because most small to medium businesses just use the award. They pay the award. Most do. They just pay the basic award wage. It's large corporations that create complex wage avoidance and tax avoidance systems. That's why we have to close the loopholes. We're not closing the loopholes because the local cafe has set up a labor hire business or developed a online platform to move everyone onto ABNs, it's because foreign private equity and large multinational corporations have done exactly that. They've created digital platforms, which they call gig economy, which somehow or another justifies 18th century wage conditions, and they've set up shelf companies to launder workers through in order to pay lower wages. That's why we need more IR reform. This is all taking place, of course, in the context of the new intergenerational report, which Jim Chalmers released on Thursday. It's quite interesting reading for people like me. So if you're enjoying this podcast, you might enjoy having a look. One of the interesting points is that the pension payments in Australia will reduce from 2.3% of GDP to 2% of GDP by 2062-63. That's because superannuation will almost double in size as a proportion of GDP. Around 9 million Australians will be 65 years or over. But the 
only a smaller proportion will be reliant on the age pension. Now, some people will say, oh, but the age pension should be available for everyone. And it is available for everyone, but it's based on need. And it's a good thing that our superannuation system can actually lift people off needing the pension. I've been very fortunate in my life to have worked in a number of roles where we have been paid above the minimum rate of super. And because we've been paid above the minimum rate of super, it is unlikely that I'll ever receive an aged pension. Now, I might, but my superannuation is very healthy thanks to a series of employers paying above the minimum rate. We know that if people get 15% or more of their salary paid into super over the majority of their life, they will not require the pension. We are on track now, we're at 11% now, and we're on track to get people to that stage. It is a phenomenal outcome when you consider the fact that there will be more people over the age of 65 in 40 years' time than there are now. At the same time, there will be an increase in the tax concessions that go to people on super, but you're talking about half a percentage point, half a percentage point uh, there. So it does shift around a bit. The fastest growing areas of federal spending will be health, aged care, NDIS, defence and interest payments. Now, I want to put interest payments into perspective here because, as I mentioned earlier, some of these things get blown out of proportion and false benchmarks get applied. So interest payments on debt in Australia will rise from 0.7% to 1.4% of GDP. Now, people will go, well, that's doubling. Well, yes, that is technically what that says. But we should remember that US debt to GDP interest payments is already 2%. Already 2% of US GDP is uh, debt interest payments. And in the UK, it's 2.5% already. So when we talk about these things, it's important to have some contextual understanding. Now, there's going to be reviews of competition, there's going to be reviews of foreign investment laws, there's going to be reviews of employment to try and maximise the upsides and minimise the downsides of some of these issues. Obviously, with the NDIS, it's important to remember this is a scheme designed to facilitate people's engagement in the economy, engagement in society, give them the opportunity that perhaps the old systems of disability support denied them. Facilitation of all people's participation is in the interests of all people. And the NDIS is one mechanism for that. We know that when done properly, the NDIS delivers economic benefits. For every dollar invested in a properly delivered NDIS, the economy benefits $2.25. And when I say the economy, I mean all of us, our Commonwealth benefits. And it's important to recognise that in the context of what the Intergenerational Report tells us, that is that the care economy, NDIS, aged care, early childhood, will almost double in size from 8% of GDP to 15% of GDP. That means that employment will grow in those sectors 
and the workers in those sectors will be driving so much of the economic demand that will power our economy in the future. To give you an example, in the last 20 years, the number of care workers has already doubled just in the last 20 years. And the intergenerational report suggests that it will double again over the course of the next 40. Of course, all of this is taking place in the context of a shift to renewables, having making Australia a renewable energy superpower and diminishing our reliance on fossil fuels. And the intergenerational report talks about how that will happen as well. There is a lot to be optimistic about for the future. And of course, there are things to be concerned about. The old battles have not yet gone away. One of the things that we're currently engrossed in in this country, of course, is the referendum. Apparently, the date will be announced this week. It's expected that there'll be an announcement in Adelaide on Wednesday, and hopefully Van and I will be able to talk about that on the week on Wednesday. One of the points that I wanted to bring up, though, was that even on Insiders, they've started to acknowledge that Peter Darden is not interested in democracy. He's not interested in the tenets of Menzies. He's not interested even in conservatism. He's interested in power and division. And this week, he attacked the AEC, the Australian Electoral Commission, for telling people the truth, for telling people the facts about how the voting will work for the referendum. You need to write yes or no in the box. There is no yes but progressive or no but racist option. There is only yes or no. Now, it is well-established custom and practice and law that if you tick the box, it will be counted as a yes vote. If you cross a box, it will not be counted at all. Why is that? Now, Peter Dutton says that that is somehow or another askew towards the yes vote. The reality is that Peter Dutton's own forms for his election to parliament, he put crosses in boxes to indicate yes. And that's why a cross can't be taken to indicate yes or no because crosses in boxes are used to indicate yes or no. They're not universally one way or the other. There might be a majority view that a cross indicates no, but the legal view is somebody could be trying to indicate that they support the issue by putting a cross in the box. Therefore, if you cross the box, it won't be counted at all, one way or the other. Peter Dutton somehow thinks this is rigging the system because a tick, which is only ever used to indicate acceptance, is going to count as yes. I have said before, I will say again, the referendum is a binary choice. There are two options, write yes or write no. You should be writing yes because if you support the idea that Australia has the oldest continuous civilization and culture on earth that is the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island cultures of this continent, that we are a 60,000-year-old nation of many nations, that we recognize that the colonization of this continent occurred against the wishes of our First Nations people, 
that we want our First Nations people to have a voice in policy that impacts them, that affects them, so that it is better policy, so that it achieves better outcomes for everyone, then you need to vote yes. Every argument I've seen to vote no has been a nonsense. It's been fear-based. It's been divisive. It's been projecting onto others. Somehow or another, a voice is is dividing Australia. That's ridiculous. Australia is divided. Of course we're divided. We're divided by states. We're divided by local government areas. We're divided by suburbs. We're divided by rivers and mountains. We're divided by our educational background. We're divided by our socioeconomic status. All communities have divisions in them. It's how we decide to repair those divisions, how we decide to build bridges over them that matters. The voice is a means to bridge a divide. It is not an expansion of one. It does not create one. There is clearly a divide between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people and other Australians. All of the stats tell us that's true. There is a divide in health outcomes, educational outcomes, socioeconomic outcomes. There's a divide in housing outcomes, in health outcomes, in longevity outcomes. Those divides are real. They're measurable. What the voice will do is help build a bridge to close some of them. It won't work immediately. And I know people will say, well, how will it solve these problems? It's a process. It establishes a process to help solve those problems. It's not a magic wand. Nothing in politics is a magic wand. The only thing in politics that is a magic wand is the electoral sugar hit of tax cuts and dodgy grants. And thankfully, that's not what the voice is. There's no element of it that involves money in any way, shape or form. It is advice to government on policies to impact Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And Peter Dutton can whine and moan and raise as much fear and hate as he likes. But at the end of the day, the Australian people have a choice to make, a yes or no decision, a binary choice. And for those who think the voice doesn't go far enough, I share your concern. But if you don't build the first bridge, you don't get to start building the second because you've got to get over the first divide before you can get over the next one. That's why I vote yes, because it's the next divide to cross. There is no progressive no. It's only yes or no. So hopefully on Wednesday, we'll hear when the referendum will be held. Rumour is mid to late October and people will get some clarity of focus. You've got to pick a side and they're actually pretty clear. There's the side with Peter Dutton and Warren Mundine and the racist bigots at CPAC want you to stay ignorant and if you don't know, vote no, who spread misinformation and lies about things like the AEC, or there's the side with people like Linda Burney, Thomas Mayo, the 80% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who want the voice, the side of the union movement, 
of most of the church groups, of most of the community groups, a side where even some of the businesses that I don't particularly like are saying they'll line up with. Or, again, back with Peter Dutton, you've got Pauline Hanson over there as well. So that's, you know, that's a grouping. You have to pick a side. It's a binary choice. It's a binary choice. And I understand that there are some people who say both options are bad. Well, maybe they are. Maybe they are. But it's a binary choice. So pick one. Pick your side. Vote yes or no. You don't have to be enthusiastic. I am, but you don't have to be. But if you are enthusiastic, go to yes23.org.au or go and check out your union's webpage because there are ways you can volunteer. You can hand out at train stations. You can go door knocking. I've been doing these things myself. It's amazing. Once you actually talk to people and get out of the media bubble, how many people really want to see change in this space. They want the referendum to succeed. They want Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to have a voice, have a say, be recognised as part of our great Commonwealth and to really start to reconcile the wounds of the past. That's it for the week on Wednesday. Weekend wrap this Sunday, the 27th of August. 2023. If you are in Sydney and you listen to this before three o'clock, get along to see Van at the Sydney Playwrights Festival. You can check out the details on her social media page. Uh, And of course, Van will join me for the week on Wednesday, on Wednesday, live, where hopefully we'll be able to talk about the launch of the referendum date and hopefully even a bit more detail on the IR bill, which should be hopefully introduced by then. Until then, remember, be kind to yourself and to each other.